We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Aikman is intercepted by Sam Mills. Steve Smith is going to go all the way. Panthers win in overtime. Newton steps up, close to the end zone. Olsen, touchdown! Brian Burns to the house! And it is caught for the touchdown by Moore. And in the foot race, McCaffrey to the end zone. Keep pounding on three! One, two, three! Keep pounding! Welcome back. It's another edition of the Court Podcast. Billy Marshall uh, by my side here. I'm John Ellis. We're having a, a fun April Fool's Day, staying out of the weeds, enjoying some good, <laughs> clean content without diving into the, some of the just the awful April Fool's posts that are going out there. But we're excited to have a guest, Billy, on today to talk uh, quarterbacks and much more with us. Yeah, yeah. I'm certainly thrilled that he decided to join us. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. It's Mark Schofield. It's our friend from Touchdown Wire in USA Today. And we've talked to uh, Mark uh, quite a bit over the years. And, you know, he specializes in breaking down quarterback play, but he's also looked at a number of position groups in this draft class. Mark, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, guys. It's great to be here. And had you not mentioned it was April Fool's Day, I was going to come in with a Garoppolo has just been traded to the Panthers joke. But (laughs) I I didn't want to do that to you guys because, (laughs) I mean, that's that's just not fair, right? At this point, it might not be the worst of possibilities, actually. But uh, actually, we're you know, online right there. Looking around at the, the landscape there, uh, Mark. I'll open it up here. Just uh, what what an off season it's been. You know, I, we're going to talk quarterbacks in, in in great detail here from the draft. But I just I want to get your opinion real quick on what happened yesterday in Tampa Bay with with, with Bruce Arians, of course, uh, stepping down from the Buccaneers. Uh, Tom Brady, of course will now continue his career into age 45 and beyond with Todd Bowles as the head coach. What do you make of that whole situation? Yeah, I mean, if you would have told me a couple of years ago that, that, that Brady would outlast at this point now Bruce Arians, I would have been stunned. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the world we're living in right now. I, I think it's, it's fascinating to see people immediately attach themselves to the idea that sort of Brady is this like Machiavelli behind the scenes, like pulling the strings and, you know, getting Arians out and all this stuff. You know, I think Arians decided that, look, this is the right time. And, you know, a lot of people pulled John Ledyard is one that pulled that quote from Arians from the, the Peter Kin pace talking about how he wanted to make sure there was a succession plan in place. He wanted to do right by his people. He wanted to do right by Todd Bowles and put him in a position where he steps into a great football team with Tom Brady, at quarterback. And, you know, it's a team that's two years removed from a Super Bowl championship and they got the bulk of that roster back in place. Obviously, they lost a couple of pieces here this offseason, but 
I think Arians just wanted Todd Bowles to be in a good position to succeed. And you wonder if Arians looked at some of the coaching moves that were made this offseason, you know, was a little bit disappointed that maybe left, which and Bowles didn't get offers for head coaching jobs and thought this is an opportunity to ensure that one of them gets a spot and I'm going to put him in a position to be successful. So, you know, good on Bruce. Um, fascinating to see how that's unfolded. And now we see, look, you know, guys, the longest tenured coach in the NFC South now, Matt Rule which yes. is kind of starting to think about, but there we go. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. I'll let it's the others, it's I'll let thing. the others litigate. <laughs> well, you know, John, I mean, just make sure you take some good notes. If you know, yeah. Any I mean, prospects. It takes seven years to get those pants him next time, but that anyway, um, Mark, we brought you on here to discuss this upcoming draft class, not just the quarterbacks, but, uh, yeah, that's yeah, a lot of the narratives are pushed around quarterbacks uh, with every draft. And as long as I've been doing this, I can't remember a class that uh, maybe 2013, but even 2013, a lot of the people I remember following on draft Twitter were very high on like Geno Smith and, uh, you know, not so much EJ Manuel. Um, and so this class, it, it does remind me of that a little bit. But I also think it's, I don't know, like I feel kind of bad because I don't think these guys are as bad as what um, is being reflected within the media and other places. Like to me, I'll just start off with the first guy here, Kenny Pickett. I don't think he's as bad as a prospect as you know, kind of how he's just kind of being portrayed. Like I saw him at Pitt, which, yeah, the ACC was, did have a down year, but he played pretty well within the offense. Mark Whipple is, you know, a very – experienced offensive coordinator he's been around has a lot of concepts that translate to the pro game uh and i'm not going to deny that you know pickett is this great prospect he isn't but i like i compare him similar to um i know some people threw out the joe burrow comparison i don't think that's accurate but maybe like a mac jones like i think he's probably more athletic uh but mac was much better at kind of uh, throwing in the tight windows and the arm strength i think mac probably beats him a little but i don't think it's like you know, a huge difference between the two. But, like, what are you seeing right now, just starting off with Kenny Pickett? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, going big picture and then whittling it down to Pickett for a second, this class isn't as bad as it's being made it out to be. It's just different, you know. It's not like last year's where you knew, look, you're going to get guys, like we were going to get, you know, five in the top 20 of the draft. We ended up with five in the top 15. And we're going to get guys that will be able to start right away. I think this class is different and let – you might have reservations about some or all of these guys started say week one, you know, even the guys that are closest to being ready, the two I would consider closest to being ready would probably be Pickett and Ritter. You know, they're going to need a little bit of time. They're going to need perhaps a little bit of, you know, development and season and before they're ready to sort of line up and take NFL snaps. And so I just think it's a different group, but I think the NFL's moves over the past couple of weeks started with say the Wentz trade and then Mariota and Trubisky and some of the other quarterback movement we've seen teams that were in a position to figure out who's going to be their starting quarterback week one gave themselves a veteran option. And I think that reflects some of the uncertainty about whether this group is going to be able to start right away with Pickett. I think it's interesting. You mentioned Mark Whipple and I think, you know, his ability to run sort of, like you said, concepts that will translate well to the NFL game is one of the things that works in his favor, his ability to sort of work through reads, work through progressions, layer throws in the middle of the field. Does he have an elite arm? No, but I think it's NFL good, NFL sufficient, and he's going to be ready to go from that perspective. I think his ability to sort of respond to pressure, provided he knows where it's coming from, which is a key thing with him, 
it's pretty good. He can move around well. He can create athletically with his feet. He's not a super athlete. He's not the best athlete in this quarterback class, but he's athletic enough and mobile enough where he, he'll be able to survive back there and extend when he needs to. I think in that sense, he's similar to Burrow in that, you know, Burrow also not a great athlete, but has the ability to move around with his feet and create space and do enough from an athletic profile to extend plays, which is a prerequisite now in today's NFL. You know, a lot of people obviously have sort of focused on the hand size and, you know, there are examples of him on film with some fumbling issues and even in some weather conditions, but now he's got the glove. He seems to have figured that part of it out. The glove I think does help him now. You know, you might think maybe an environment like New Orleans at 18, where he can play most of the games in a climate controlled dome might be a good spot for him if you're worried about that. But I think overall, he's a solid prospect. He's sort of in that like Andy Dalton kind of tier where he's like an athletic quarterback and move around well. And, you know, maybe that's a guy that has second round value. But with the way quarterbacks get pushed up boards now, he's probably going to see himself called earlier on the first round side of things. Now, with respect to the pressure side of it, as I said, he's good when he can see the pressure coming. Like if you get mugged up, a gap looks from the linebackers and those guys indeed come, he can handle it. But it's when the pressure comes in an unexpected way, simulated pressures seem to give him trouble if he doesn't know exactly where it is and he has to sort of have that secondary response to pressure. That's when he gets a little bit more erratic. I'd like to see him clean that up because until he does, opposing defensive coordinators is going to throw sim pressure after sim pressure after him and you're going to force him into some mistakes. Yeah, let's turn to Malik Willis here real quick. You know, he's got that compact frame. He's built like a tank. I, I like watched him throw the ball, Mark. He really – I know you were down there at the Senior Bowl, and I was talking to a friend of mine I do radio with, and he was cutting that ball through the wind so well. Um, I think the problem is with Malik – and just tell me what your thoughts are on this. I think it's, it's learning the layered system, just reading, processing, that type of deal. It's going to take a little bit of time there. But the upside is tremendous – I would think if you bring Malik in, whatever team it is, and he's not a Cam Newton type in terms of the size or height, but what Ron Rivera did a great job of is he worked with Gus Malzahn, and Rob Chinziski, you know, was a big part of this, bringing some of the same concepts from Auburn and integrating that with the Eric Coriel stuff they were doing back in the day. Would you think anybody that takes a leap on Malik in the first round would be wise to maybe get together with like a Hugh Freeze and Liberty staff and integrate that? Because it seems to me like the, the problem with like Justin Fields is Matt Nagy just threw him out there and said, learn my stuff. And it just wasn't a good match. How does Malik Willis translate into the next level? Well, with Malik, the athleticism and the arm talent give him sort of that wider outcome range, right? That, that easier sort of success rate where if something doesn't look right to him, he can pull it down and create with his legs better than most guys in this class, not all, but most. Um, and then that arm talent that he has, like you said, the ability to sort of cut throws through wind, through weather with elite level velocity, you know, that gives him a little bit more time. There's a reason that a lot of people have looked at the Josh Allen development and said, well, that's the Malik Willis path because you have the athleticism, you have the arm talent. And so when he could take that extra half second in the pocket to either read out a concept or decide if he really wants to let this go and still put the ball where it needs to be on time because of that velocity, whereas other guys are going to have to pull the trigger quicker because they don't have that arm talent. It's going to give you a, an easier path, a little bit of an easier developmental curve, but you know, looking at Allen and thinking you can do that with Willis is a both it's both a blessing and a curse because Josh Allen might be one of one in that sense. You know, it's been rare to see a quarterback 
move and develop the way that Allen did. And a lot of it is just Josh Allen, who he is and the work that he's done. And so a team is certainly going to talk themselves into drafting Malik Willis early, thinking that they can do with him what Brian Dable and the Bills did with Josh Allen. They might be right. They might be wrong. And with respect to, you know, the offense that he ran at Liberty, I think that should be a prerequisite for all offensive coordinators and head coaches of rookie quarterbacks. Once you draft that rookie, your first few phone calls should be his college coaches, his high school coaches, heck, his Pop Warner coaches, like seven on seven, like spring passing leagues, whatever. What did this kid like to run? And then you sit down with him and ask him, like, what concepts did you like? You, you, if you like it and we don't have it in our playbook, we're going to get it in. If we've got stuff in our playbook that you've gone now through and you've read and you don't like it, we're going to tear it out. Like, we're going to run the stuff you want to run. And I, I, I think, you know, Matt Nagy and how he handled Mitchell Trubisky, how he handled Justin Fields, like, that should be the last time we see a coach with a rookie quarterback, like, say, no, this is what you're going to do. You're going to do my stuff. No. You run what the kid likes. Like, that's the way it should be done. One of Brian Dable's, like, stock answers and the things he kept telling us, you know, at the Combine and after he was hired by the Giants was, I sat down with Josh Allen and we got on the same page conceptually with, like, the stuff he liked to run, the stuff he didn't. All young quarterbacks need coaches that will do that with him. And Malik Willis is certainly among that because you're going to need to put him in some familiar environments to put him in a position to be successful. Now, the tricky part is that Liberty offense didn't do a ton schematically. You know, it was, you know, a lot of bubbles and fake screen seams and things like that. But if it worked for him, you get it in because you want to put him on familiar footing. A, fam a quarterback that is comfortable and familiar with what he's running is a confident quarterback any confident quarterback is, in many cases, a successful one. I want to transition just to the final two guys, um, Desmond Ritter and Matt Corral. Uh, Ritter, it, it seems like he's gotten a lot of love from certain circles of the internet. You know, Seth Galina, Derek Klassen, and even Nate Tice, they've been high on him. And uh, certainly those are some respected voices. Um, and, and then Corral is, you know, sort of the opposite of Ritter in the sense that he's much more of a – I mean, obviously, comes from a different offense, but he has, you know, some people see the arm talent and just the quick release, uh, but he's playing in, in an environment where things maybe aren't as structured as well as they are at Cincinnati for Ritter, who looks much more like the prototype and where operates uh, within structure pretty well. I, I don't have, you know, my own opinion. I, I don't really care too much for Ritter. I thought he was, I watched Cincinnati quite a bit the past two years because they've been, uh, you know, playing really well. I thought he's just okay. I, I never really saw something that, uh, you know, kind of attracted me to him too much. Uh, and with Corral, it's certainly you see the highlight-worthy plays, but obviously uh, you want to kind of have a quarterback who plays well within structure too. Uh, so kind of discuss what you see from those two guys. Yeah, with, with Ritter, the pro-Ritter case is very much the mental side of things, I think. What, what was fascinating sort of watching him, particularly this last year, was his ability to sort of work through concepts on the front side. And if it wasn't there, get to the backside and hit that backside dig, which is sort of a, a concept and a, a schematic opponent. We saw a lot this year. There was a huge topic of discussion with the Rams offense and how they dialed things up with the Browns offense, what they tried to do with Odell and how Baker refused to sort of get to that backside dig. Now you have a quarterback prospect coming out that 
has shown you on film time and time again. If he likes it on the front side, he'll hit it. If he doesn't, he'll pull it back, get to his third, his fourth read. So that coupled with what he did in games, like his game against Houston, where the Cougars did a lot with the spun safety stuff at the snap, going from two to one, one to two. You know, and if they were going from two to one, he'd find his isolated matchup and hit it. If they go in from one to two, he's work, he's working through concepts. And then you add in the athletic component, which, you know, you saw some of it on film and then the way he tested in Indianapolis with the four, five, two, and, you know, really looking like an, a pretty good athlete for the position. You start to think, all right, there are some things he can do from a mental perspective. When you add in that athletic component, there's a path for him to be a successful NFL quarterback. The hesitation with Ritter is accuracy, is ball placement. And it's an area he struggled, you know, three years ago, two years ago. This last season, he got better at it. And it does seem like he tends to miss early in games. So you wonder if it's a, if he's just hyped up, if he's nervous, if he's working through some jitters. But accuracy is one of those things that sometimes you either have it or you don't. And you got to put the football, I mean, that's job one, right? Like put the football where it needs to be. And if he struggles with that at the college level in the Saturday game, if that continues to the Sunday game, that's going to be a problem. And, and so I'm, I'm, he's like my, he's my QB three. I could see the path for him, you know, for it working because of what he does from a mental perspective. And I think there's an opportunity for him to play early, but that accuracy component is going to be an issue if it continues. Matt Corral is my next guy. And what's interesting with Matt Corral, not that he's the same type player, but his evaluation process is very similar in my mind to the Justin Herbert evaluation process because you're trying to watch these guys and see what he does that will project well to the NFL, that will be translatable to the NFL. And you're seeing bubbles and orbits and a lot of RPO stuff and RPO glances. And it's like, okay, show me some stuff that will actually be in an NFL offense that will work on Sundays. Now, of course, look, you can get drafted to a team that decides we're going to build the whole plan out of the RPO system, like the Dolphins have done with Tua, and that could work. But you have to dig in a little deeper. When you do, you see some evidence that, like, yeah, he can go full field, like right, left, middle, tie his eyes and his hips and his feet together. He had a throw against uh, Mississippi State where he's reading their orbit out concept to the right, which is something that a ton of comes off of it, checks the sit route in the middle of the field, and then has two end cuts, gets to this fifth read, and the eyes and his feet are like in sync perfectly from right to middle to left. And it's like, all right, that's one play. If he can do that repeatedly, that's an NFL quarterback. That's NFL-level stuff. And, and so there's elements to what he did at Mississippi in Lane Kiffin's system that are translatable. Of course, the flip side to that is a lot of it isn't. You know, a lot of it was – you know, orbits and swings and bubbles. And then there's also this idea that if it was third and seven, they were throwing a screen. Like he, Kiffin wasn't going to ask him to like work through concepts on third and seven situations. He wasn't going to even ask him really to play quarterback. He was just going to be a point guard. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Probably not a good thing. And so he's certainly talented. There are also times on film where if they dial up a shot play, he was going to throw it no matter what. He, he was just going to, I'm going to lock in on this. I'm going to throw this deep post route because I want to throw it. And he's got other options available to him, intermediate, even underneath, and he doesn't take him. He's going to learn to, he's going to learn to take those layups. As I, I know it from experience. Like when the coach is like, all right, we're going to dial up the shot play. You're like, I'm hitting this no matter what. Sometimes you got to check it down even in those moments. And I'd like to see him do more of that. Yeah, certainly. I, I would agree with that too. You know, as we close out here, uh, just a big picture of you, Mark. Let's say, you know, you're teaching a class at Georgetown. I mean, you do some really great work, you know, studying these draft prospects, especially QBs. 
what are like some important things that you try to study when you are scouting quarterbacks? I think the first thing to remember is that quarterback is a unique position with a lot of other positions, wide receiver, offensive lineman, linebacker, you know, you, you study them from snap to whistle, right? You know, are, are you aligned right? Are you, is your technique right at the snap where it needs to be? You know, if you're a receiver and you've got a press aligned defender, what's your release package look like right as the play begins? Can you beat press aligned defenders or do you struggle? If you struggle, is it with a certain kind of receiver? Like do you struggle with longer guys like a, a sauce gardener or do you struggle across the board against press aligned defenders? Quarterbacks, a Monday morning to Sunday night position, right? Like there's so much that goes into it sort of away from the, the, on the field, whether it's, you know, understanding offensive concepts, understanding defensive coverages. And I know, look, you can staple it together. You don't have to tell me the difference between stubby or stump and things like that. And I personally, when I was studying this position earlier, I used to be so dogmatic with like, they've got to know the difference and things like that. I would spend so much time in the pre-snap phase of a play taking notes before the ball was even snapped. But it is a different position. You have to have that knowledge base and you have to have that work ethic in the days leading up to the game carry you through so you're in a position to be successful. And so, you know, I try to, with the work that I do, incorporate that. Like, you you do have to put yourself in the mind of the quarterback pre-snap. Like, you know, because you're evaluating decision-making. You're evaluating what they do with the football on the given play. And you have to try to put yourself in the mindset of, okay, well, this is what I'm seeing with the vantage of a pause button and two different angles on a play. Like, I can see where the corners are, where their eyes are. I can see where the safeties are. And then you sort of then evaluate their decision. Because if you're just saying, oh, he should have made this throw or that throw, well, really? Should he have? Or was his, was the concept even going to take his eyes there based on what he, he was seeing pre-snap? You know, and the other thing to sort of keep in mind is that it's a competitive, tough leadership position. Like you've got to have that ability to walk into a huddle, to command the attention of the other 10 guys that are in that huddle. And you have to have the ability to sort of step in there and see all 10 sets of eyes staring back at you. Because when they're looking at their cleats, when they're adjusting their gloves, when they're playing with their wristbands and they're not looking at you, that's a sign that you haven't done your job. And it's a lonely place to be. That's another awkward part of my own past like walking into the huddles and seeing guys looking at their cleats and it's like man these guys just do not trust me like you have to have that leadership quality it doesn't have to be a tom brady rah rah guy it can be a quiet leadership type like a justin herbert but you have to be able to instill that sense of belief in the guys around you that that yeah we can go ahead and get this done we can finish off this drive with a touchdown we can pull out this comeback and so the leadership aspect of the position the competitive toughness aspect of the position it's important and it's, it's something that I've had to sort of reevaluate over the years. I mean, one of my biggest misses from a draft evaluation standpoint is Dak Prescott. I, I, I just did not see it with him coming out. I mean, I think I had him as sort of the Christian Hackenberg tier that year. I mean, I just, I just didn't see it. But then he hit, so I went back and reread all of my notes on him, and I had it littered all over his, his notes from studying him, competitive toughness, competitive toughness, but I didn't weigh it properly. And so now – uh, I've sort of adjusted my scale where I take that more into consideration because uh, of just what it matters, how much it matters for teams, for quarterbacks. And sometimes just it matters because it gives them that drive to perfect their craft away from the field, similar to the Josh Allen discussion. So those are some things that I sort of try to keep in mind, but it's also important to remember the NFL gets it wrong too. 
You know, the NFL has all the information. They have the resources to hire private investigators, to talk to kindergarten teachers, to, to trail these guys with private investigators when they're flying out for a, a top 30 visit or something like that. And they still get it wrong because ultimately it's the player themselves. And you, tr you try to, you know, see if you can identify the traits that matter on the field, the traits that matter away from the field. But ultimately we're talking about 22, 23, 23 24-year-old young men that are going out on their own for the first time that are doing adult things like insurance and buying condos or homes and things like that and trying to get, figure it out in their first real job and sometimes you get it right sometimes you don't but the league gets it wrong too so don't feel bad too bad when you miss but learn from it when you do that's a great perspective mark schofield is our guest usa today's touchdown wire hey uh quick question on tight ends i mean look th this is a Quarterback's best friend, as you know, playing the position yourself from your past and studying these guys. Having a guy from a detached perspective on the line that can get out there in space, you know, attack the hash and, and get things done, it's just a staple of the modern game. You talk about guys like Trey McBride, Greg Dolchich, and others. How do you assess this tight end group right now that seems to be flying under the radar a bit for most who study the draft? Yeah, John, I mean, it is flying under the radar. It's not like last year where you're going to see a guy in the top five. If, if you're a fan of the tight end position, you might be waited until later on Friday night to hear a tight end call. I mean, it might not be until the end of the second round. It might not be until the third round. But I think once you hear that first guy come off the board, you might see a little run at the position because I think there's a cluster in guys saying that, like, you know, 60 to 80 range, maybe 60 to 90 range. They're very talented players. And what's interesting about this group is traditionally when you're talking about tight ends translating from the college game and like you said, that sort of detached player that's really playing more in the slaughter and the wing, that's more of that move type tight end. You're wondering about how well can they block? Like when they're asked to line up next to the tackle on a gap concept, are they going to be able to handle that? Are they going to be able to handle even zone block and stuff? This group, you've got guys like Ruckert from Ohio State, Ferguson from Wisconsin, you know, some of these other guys that they're really good blockers, you know, and you're wondering, is there more to them as a receiver? In fact, you know, with Ruckert, I, I sort of get a Tommy Tremble vibe, which is he was asked to do so much blocking because of what he had around him. I think there's untapped potential as a receiver, which is how I felt about Tremble. And so I, I think it's an interesting class. It's sort of a, a deeper group in that you're going to see guys come off the board in that day two, early day three range. They're going to be immediate contributors. I mean, I like McBride the most. I think he's the most complete guy. Um, also, you know, I got a chance to talk to him a couple of weeks ago, and he, he told me that, you know, when he's playing Call of Duty, he doesn't drop at Superstore, which if you play Call of Duty, you understand that that's a pretty smart, you know, way to go about things because you <laughs> drop there, you're going to get shredded immediately. So I think that that shows some good awareness. But I think McBride's sort of a, you know, that traditional like inline guy that can handle the blocking part extremely well, but can also separate from linebackers and safeties. You know, Dulce's from UCLA is a fascinating study. Uh, I think he's a tremendous route runner, um, moves really well, does his best work blocking wise sort of in space when he's either in Y ice or detached a little bit, but can do some of the inline stuff. The guy I'm really curious to see how the league views him is Isaiah likely from coastal Carolina, because you know, he's a wide receiver in high school. Came to school as a wide receiver, then sort of tra transitioned to tight end. Um, they moved him around a ton, um, but he's, he's a very good sort of route runner. Did most of his blocking sort of second and third levels in space, but can handle that pretty well. But overall, I like this tight end class. It certainly doesn't have the star power like we saw last year with Pitts going up four, but 
I think there are going to be some guys coming off the board in that like 60, 70, 80 range that we're going to be hearing about next year because they can do the things that often give rookie tight ends trouble, which is line up next to the tackle and handle the blocking part of the position. Yeah, Mark, I certainly agree with you. A couple guys I want to focus on that really showed their athleticism, Jelani Woods and uh, Chico Zime, um, is it Okonkwo? Okonkwo, yeah. Island? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was really impressed with him. I know you did a video on Okonkwo <clears throat> that's on YouTube that kind of just showcases his, his athleticism. Uh, but what do you think about those two guys? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see if the league sort of agrees with the trend we're seeing from those guys right now because both of them came into sort of the, the all-star circuit period of time, like under the radar. There were certain guys in certain corners of the internet were like, yeah, Woods, Oconquo, like these guys are talented. But then both of them really performed well at Shrine Bowl practices. And then obviously what they did at the combine, I mean, Woods, one of the most athletic tight ends in, in the history of the relative athletic scoring from Kentley Platt, Okwankwo, extremely good. The only thing that sort of dinged him in terms of being the top one or one of the top tight ends in the history of the RAS was his size. You know, there's been some consideration that maybe he's going to be more of an H-back. And if you, you know, plug in his RAS as a fullback, he's, I think, the most athletic fullback in the history of the RAS, or at least up there. And so two extremely athletic players, you could see how their speed stresses defenses. You know, whether it was Oconquo uh, in that video you mentioned, Billy, you know, he gets open on a bender vertical route against Michigan State, and he's on top of those second-level defenders in the blink of an eye. Now, there's a bust. One of them doesn't carry them. But still, you can see that speed translating. With Woods, man, I mean, he's he's tough to bring down to the open field, too. I mean, he's not running around people. He's running through people. And in many cases, that first, second, third defender that get there, they can't get him down. Um, and especially with his frame at six seven, and the way he ran the forty, and how he sort of runs through people, you could just imagine on third and seven, you run at four verts with him running that bender from the number three, and he's going to give defenses problems. And so, you know, I think ultimately with the tight end position, it's important to remember schematically, right? We we all know this league sort of trended in the direction of more too high coverages. We're seeing it more and more, and I do think the next evolution we're going to see, you know, for next season is more drop eight stuff as we saw Cincinnati, what they were able to do against Kansas City with that. You're going to need tight ends that can sort of attack the middle of the field on those routes. And with Woods and Oconquo, their athleticism, their ability to do that, I think teams schematically are going to want that as part of their offense. Yeah, I'm 100% agree, agreeing with you there. Um, I want to transition over to wide receivers now, Mark. And this is a uh, – it, it's a polarizing class because there's so many different opinions on these guys. And – there were a few people, uh, Austin Gill, and uh, I, I think I saw during a combine, Marcus Mosher was another one. Uh, two good friends of mine. They, they obviously do good work. But uh, Traylon Burks is a very polarizing prospect, and they compared him to LaVisca Chanel. And I brought this up last night, and there was a touchdown that Burks had against uh, Texas A&M uh, where you know he was lined up outside, and there was a little bit of a separation that he used with his arm. But to me, I see this guy as a very – fascinating prospect because he has much more like verticality than a Chenault who in my opinion is much more of a guy who uh, you know it, it thrives like in the short and inter intermediate parts of the field and the way he runs after the catch is more of he wants to like run you over whereas with Burks and I think Mina Kimes posted this clip it was that touchdown against Alabama where he just yeah. like ran away from 
you know, those members of the Alabama secondary. And sometimes I do think those plays can be a little overrated. And we've, we've seen guys like a, um, what was that guy from Iowa State? Hakeem Butler, for instance, where he's just running by, you know, but those are big 12 defenders. We're talking about future NFL players at Alabama. So that's nothing to scoff at. I want to just focus on Burks first and get your opinion on him. And then I guess we'll just kind of have a bigger discussion on how you see this class in general. Yeah. I mean, Burks is, like you said, a polarizing and fascinating prospect. I think if I were the offensive coordinator of the team that drafts him, I'm giving him nines, sevens, eights, overs as a rookie. Like run those. You're going to be fine. We'll figure it out. Um, because I'm not worried about him from that speed perspective. I, I know, like you said, that Alabama play, sometimes we over rely on one clip, one play, one moment. But when you're catching a ball, when you're basically stopped working back towards the quarterback and then getting upfield, making that quick turn and accelerating away from an Alabama secondary across the field for a touchdown, that matters. It's like you said, it's not you're not doing it against Big 12 defenders. You're doing it against, you know, the SEC, the Alabama. I mean, they were in the national championship game. So I think that play – should sort of illustrate that, like, he's got game speed. And there's also important to remember, like, he's doing it at 225. Like, it's not like he's doing it at 190, you know, running the 40 the way he did. So I, I think he's a vertical threat. He's a confident vertical receiver downfield. He had a play against Mississippi where the corner played, like, nine yards off pre-snap. He gets five yards downfield and puts the arm up like he's Randy Moss. And they threw it to him, and he went up and got it. Like, he's a ball winner in the vertical passing game. Give him – like I said, nine, sevens, eights, overs, and just sort of let him go. Because I think he is that sort of vertical X type that like, yeah, I'm not going to draft him and make him run slants. I might do that with Drake London, but I'm taking this guy. I'm letting him go deep and we're going to have some fun in the downfield passing game. I mean, imagine a player that many have compared him to is AJ Brown. Imagine him in Tennessee having basically two AJ Brown types in that vertical downfield play action passing game. I think that would be an ideal situation for him. So, you know, like you said, it's, it's a strange class, Bill, in that, you know, you can ask 10 different people who their wide receiver one is, you're going to get 10 different answers. I think he goes earlier in the first round than people are expected. I think people are going to sleep on him a little bit because of that 40 time that he posted. And I think in that kind of role, in that vertical kind of passing offense, he can be an immediate contributor as a rookie. No, I, I, I actually think that A.J. Brown comparison makes a lot of uh, a lot more sense than some of the other ones I've seen. I know some people, uh, I, I don't agree with the Josh Gordon comparison. I thought, I thought Gordon was yeah, much I, more. I don't see that one either. <laughs> yeah, Gordon was a pretty special athlete himself. And I remember watching him at Baylor. Uh, he he uh, he certainly had you know the ability to get vertical much more uh, efficiently than, and I, again, I don't want to say, like I, I think Burks is really good at it, but um, you know, Gordon just was a different cat altogether. Yeah. But um, you know, another guy that's a little polarizing and you know, there's different opinions on him. Uh, Jameson Williams, uh, Alabama, you know, he's obviously coming off a, um, ACL injury. Uh, some people have him wide receiver one. Uh, I was looking at, you know, some rankings yesterday and I sort of have him like behind the two Ohio state guys and probably Burks too, like the wide receiver four, wide receiver five territory. And that's, um, not even including the, what he's kind of rehabbing from. What are your thoughts on him? Yeah, I mean, he's a solid player. I know, I know, like you said, that there are people really that have him, you know, wide receiver one. I'm not there with him. You know, I think there are other – and, you know, he's not even two for me. Um, but I, I think he's certainly explosive. He's athletic, can move fairly well. Um, 
solid when he faced press coverage. Like, I think there are guys that face press the line defenders that had a little bit more success with him than he did. And I think that might be an area when he gets to the NFL, if he starts seeing more press coverage, it's going to take him a little bit of time to sort of adjust to that. You know, I think he's a very solid, you know, good prospect, but I think that there are some things that he needs to improve upon where, you know, other guys are in a better position to handle those kinds of things early in the NFL. Ultimately, like it might be a scheme fit thing with him. He might need to go to an offense that's more quick passing game, you know, based where you can build things around his ability after the catch. Um, you can build things around his his quickness and his change of direction skills, you know, where he's going to separate early in the down. And I think you could put together a nice little package for him where he'd be very successful at it. But I don't think he's this like surefire you know, top five type of wide receiver. I don't think this class really has that kind of player. Um, so he's a good prospect. I, I think he's going to go early in the first round, but uh, there are guys that I, in this class, would prefer over him. Let's turn to defense, Mark. Uh, you talked about earlier with this all fair here that you've been studying the corners. Uh, look, <laughs> Sauce Gardner is a, is a specimen, 6'3", long, can do a lot of great things. I cover Clemson down here in the Carolinas. Andrew Booth is a guy I've had my eye on. Uh, obviously, he's got some physical traits I like and played a ton of snaps, didn't give up a lot of big plays. But when you study this group as a whole, just give me kind of your top four or five guys you think of in this group and, and what type of group are we looking at this year? I, I, John, I think it's a very good corner class. I mean, if you're a fan of a team that needs cornerback help, you're going to find some guys in the first round that are going to be day one starters, plug and play. You're going to find some guys on day two, day three, even that you can carve out roles for. I mean, a, a Tariq Woolen, you know, the UTSA guy that um, started as a wide receiver and, you know, 6'3", 205, but moves really well, tested very well. You know, he's raw and kind of, I, I think at times relied too much on his length. He thought he could undercut routes and, you know, jump routes and, quarterbacks were able to fit throws around him. He's going to learn to sort of use his length better. And if he does that, he's going to be a very good corner at the next level. But there's talent all over this cornerback board. I mean, you might get guys that come off the board, like I said, on day three, that are going to be immediate contributors. You know, for me, similar to receiver, almost similar to quarterback. Like, you're going to tell me you've got Stanley one. You're going to tell me you have Booth one. You're going to tell me you have Gardner one. Like, I'm fine with it. For me, I have Gardner one. Um, it's not a knock on the other two guys. I think all three of these guys are top 10 type talents. Um, but I look at Garner and for a guy of his size, the movement skills, um, there, there were plays where he's in man coverage and there's a scramble drill situation. It's not like, like it's one thing if you can run with a guy on a sort of defined route, like even if it's a double move, you're like, all right, well, I've seen this before. I've seen an out and up. I've seen a hitch and go. Like it's not, that unexpected and you can change directions with them even for a guy of his size and it's yeah it's impressive but you've, you've seen it before well, what do you get a scramble drill moment and suddenly it's an unexpected change and adjustment from that receiver but you as a guy of his size can match and turn your hips and stay with him it's extremely impressive to me and i love how he uses his length right like he's got that wingspan and he always has a hand on that receiver so he never loses contact with him so you get that sudden change of direction you get that sudden adjustment of scramble drill he's like all right i know exactly where i need to be i'm a huge fan of his game i think all three of those guys at the top are sort of schematically diverse 
Uh, but I think whether you drop sauce and man, off, off man, zone, pattern match stuff, he can handle it well. Booth's a fascinating study. I mean, I keep coming back to the idea of Clemson used him so much in like off man and off coverages, let him come downhill and make tackles. You know, you'll give up the hitch, but you'll make that immediate tackle. He's got that ability to click, close, and drive to the catch point. I look at how Jonathan Gannon structured his defense last year, and I think if he's if Booth is somehow on the board when the Eagles have one of their three picks in the first round and he gets past them, I'll be stunned. I think he's an absolutely perfect fit for what they do conceptually, given how he was used at Clemson last year. You know, Derek Sinley's 2019 tape sort of speaks for itself. You know, I know that there are questions about what he did the past couple of years with, with injuries, and there are some games like Alabama two years ago where it's like, man, this was a rough night for him. But then you turn on that 2019 tape, and you're like, this is a kid playing in the SEC out of the box, and he's handling it as well as you can ask anybody to do so. And I think, you know, that should sort of speak for itself. So any of those three guys, CB1 in your book, I get it. I, I completely do. The next guy for me is Trent McDuffie, uh, the Washington corner, who just watch him drive and, and, you know, cover a shallow crosser on a third and four and make an immediate tackle and actually make a tackle for a loss. You know, a three-yard throw becomes a two-yard gain because he finds a way to pick himself through traffic to, to avoid rubs and, and collisions underneath and just close on those kinds of routes. And we see so much in the NFL today of those crossers underneath and trying to get the guys, you know, working open, open in space. It's a weird sort of, we'll revert into flanker drive and all the Bill Walsh stuff he did with Jerry Rice. Now you're seeing teams try to do it again, but he has the ability to erase that in the blink of an eye. It's just something that blew me away every time I saw it. And his, his game film is littered with examples of that. And so I see that and I'm just like, give me that guy. Like we'll, we'll, we'll erase those concepts and we get somebody else on the other side of the field that handles the other stuff. We're going to be fine. And, and so for me, McDuffie is four, but look, you've got, Elon from Florida, who's a very talented player. I, I know there are questions about him from a length perspective, McCreary from Auburn, but I, I look at some of what he's done in the SEC the past couple of years. And I'm like, that's still a first round corner in my book. So it, it's a very good corner class. Those three guys at the top, I think are great. And you're going to get guys, like I said, day two, day three, they're going to find roles immediately as NFL players. Quickly, just looking back at last year's draft, and we're going to move on and close things out with you. Mark Schofield is our guest here. A lot of Panthers fans are eager to see J.C. Horn back on the field. He was very much heralded early uh, in, in camp. I saw him here in Spartanburg, and he just looked tremendous. Long arms, good length, great physicality, and you saw him early in the season move around. That's what I love about his game. He can play outside. He plays the slot with proficiency, which is not easy to do in this league. But what's your sense of J.C. Horn coming back off this injury year two, Got another year in this system with Phil Snow. I think a lot of Panthers fans are pretty excited to see this kid back in action. I absolutely loved Horn coming out. Um, and I, I know that there was a little bit of pushback when people sort of brought up Jalen Ramsey with respect to his evaluation. I was one of the people that did, but it, it, it that brought up Ramsey's name. And it was a usage profile, right? Because there were, there were times when you, you were studying Horn when they were just like, look, this guy is their best offensive player. You're covering him, whether it was Pitts, whether it was other receivers, whether it was a guy in the slot, like whoever the most dangerous weapon was on their opposing offense, they were going to put him on him. You know, and I think the ability of a defensive back to, like you said, John, 
playing the boundary against the next receiver on one snap, playing the slot against a slot guy on second down. And then on third down, you're going to line up across from the tight end in a YI. So when you're going to cover him and you're going to match him step for step and play him physical to the catch point. I know a play that I brought up all the time was the back shoulder throw to Kyle Pitts, where he was again, covering him in man coverage on the outside. It, it took a perfect play by Pitts to, to make that reception. He was in absolute perfect position, step for step and physical at the catch point. That's a rare skill set to have for many corners. It's like, yeah, you're a great boundary guy, or yeah, you're a great guy in the slot. It's rare when you can have a corner that can do all of that. Ramsey is one of those guys, Stefan Gilmore at times, like Bill Belichick, couple of years ago when they were playing the Eagles and it was clear that Carson Wentz was throwing to a tight end on third and seven. That's who you cover. And when they played the 49ers a couple of years ago, George Kittle, that's your guy, Stephon Gilmore. You're going to go cover him. When you have a corner that can do that, that brings that versatility, that's huge because the underlying theme, one of many underlying themes, let's put it that way, of the combine podium sessions from coaches and general managers this year, two years ago, the last time I was out there before COVID was that the NFL was a matchup game. If offensive coordinators are trying to create advantageous matchups for their best players and try to put defenses in a position where you've now got a linebacker trying to carry Devonta Smith on an over road. Defensive coordinators need to find people to erase those matchups. Horn is the kind of player with the skill set to play inside, outside against bigger bodies, receivers, bigger body tight ends, and shifty slot guys that can erase those matchups from a defensive perspective. That is the kind of player that can be a defensive coordinator's best friend. And so I'm a huge fan of his game. I'm excited to see him back because I think he's the type of weapon you need in today's NFL to help you as a defensive coordinator erase those matchups. Well, Mark, I really appreciate taking the time this morning to join us. And as we close out here, what are you working on? Are you having any type of draft guides come out? Are you posting your scouting reports anywhere? Like where can people find your draft work in particular? Yeah, guys, always uh, love coming on with you guys. Huge fans of you guys and what you're doing all, all year round. I'm such huge fans of both of you. Um, at USA Today's Touchdown Wire, like I said, I'm doing top well, – we usually do top 11 at each position, and I'm doing quarterbacks, receivers, tight ends, interior defensive line, linebackers, and corners. I've cheated as I have done most years. I'm doing a top 16 at wide receiver just because I didn't feel right leaving some of these talented guys off. Um, you know, guys we didn't even get a chance to talk about, but it's a very good receiver group. But those are going to start rolling out next week. We're going to have, I think – on Monday, the 4th, the quarterbacks go up. Wednesday, the 6th, receivers. And then this Thursday, the 7th, the tight ends. And then the week after that, interior defensive line. My colleague, Doug Farrar, is doing the other position. So he's got, you know, offensive line, running back, uh, pass rushers and safeties. And so that's kind of how we divide it up. Um, but, you know, we give you, like, full-on film and metrics and all that sort of fun stuff. So, you know, you can look for those next week at uh, touchdownwire.usatoday.com. Yeah, certainly please go check that out. Uh, they do a ter- tremendous do- job, you guys, uh, with Doug and Lori and whoever else is that I'm missing out. But um, you can find Mark on Twitter at Mark Schofield. That's S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D. Mark, thanks again for joining. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Always a blast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones 
who get it done.